0: Welcome to the Legally Speaking Podcast. You are now listening to season six of the show. I'm your host, Rob Hanna. This week, I'm delighted to be joined by Orly LaBelle. Orly is the Warren Distinguished Professor of Law and Director of the Center for Employment and Labor Policy at the University of San Diego. This year, she has been awarded a University. Professorship for Outstanding Contributions in Teaching and Research. Orly has clerked at the Israeli Supreme Court and is a former military data analyst. She has taught at Yale Law School, served as a fellow at Harvard University, Center for Ethics and the Professions, the Kennedy School of Government, and Weatherhead Center for International Affairs. Orly regularly consults governments and industry professionals on law as well as technology. She's been featured in the likes of the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, Wired, and the New Yorker. She's also a member of the American Law Institute. Orly is an award-winning writer, the author of You Don't Own Me, Talent Wants to Be Free, and her forthcoming book, The Equality Machine. So a very, very warm welcome, Orly.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. And before we dive into everything, would you mind telling us a little bit more about your background and experiences?
1: Sure. So my background is a bit Mm. unusual for an American law professor. I uh, am an Israeli. Now I'm a naturalized American as well. But I started my career in law in uh, Israel after my military service. I went to Tel Aviv University. I Clerked on this Roseview Court, which was an amazing experience. And then, really, I wanted to expand my understanding and comparisons of legal systems. And I traveled all the way to Cambridge, Massachusetts uh, for a a couple of degrees. And, um, you know, from there, the academic track was uh, pretty much, you know, more more of the natural, uh, you know, stages of uh, research and. teaching and I moved to California for permanent jobs, um, me and my husband, and we love it here in Southern California.
0: And there's a lot to unpack there because you you mentioned, obviously, you've studied. So you've studied at Tel Aviv University and also sort of been at Harvard Law School. So what were your experiences studying at both institutions like?
1: Well, both institutions are world class, and honestly, I think people thought, you know, you come. People at Harvard think, you know, you come to Harvard. Wow, uh, that's uh, the top. But uh, I. Never felt like you know, it was more challenging at Harvard or kind of less quality education at Tel Aviv, and um, I'm very much in touch with both institutions um, all the time. So uh, both Harvard, uh, the Harvard Coop um, bookstore, and Tel Aviv University are doing events for my new book that's coming out in October. And I just got back from uh, Tel Aviv University. I spend every summer there. I have a summer off. Office. I'm very loyal to Tel Aviv University law faculty, even though uh, in Israel at large, I have co-authors and colleagues at really all the universities at Tel- in, in Israel because it's a small academic community. But I'm, I'm very much a Tel Aviv person. So I, I have a very strong love for both these institutions. Oh,
0: that's lovely to hear. And I, I absolutely love just hearing your story and your, your background. And let's stick with Israel then, because you clerked at the Israeli Supreme Court. So how did you come across that amazing opportunity? Tell us more about what your role involved as well.
1: Right. No, I didn't come across it. That sounds too casual. <laughs> it's a really, you know, when, when you have the ambitions to um, become a professor and to go for graduate school uh, abroad and to uh, not only practice, but really do kind of deep thinking. Um, I think it's similar really everywhere, definitely here in the United States as well. You know, the place that you want to get some training is on the Supreme Court um, or any court for that matter. I very much encourage all my students here at University of San Diego to look for a clerkship job. I think you get so much from being in the chambers, the judicial chambers, understanding how the adjudication works. Not you know just seeing it kind of from the outside from law firms. Um, so I was very fortunate. Uh, the part that's kind of more casual and, and more fortunate and, and more luck than uh, I don't know brains is that I uh, applied uh, for the for for being a clerk with the justices. And what happened that year, it was less of an organized application process than it is today, where I think you send kind of centralized applications, and then it goes to all the justices at the same time, and they decide who to interview. Uh, At that point, there was a little bit of a race between the justices. And my justice, Yitzhak Zamil, who is actually a Quite famous in the UK in administrative law, um, he wrote very significant books on you know, on admin law and common law, employment regulation as well. But um, Justice Amir, because he's such a sweet person, I think he felt like he was late in the game the year before me, and he had not scheduled, you know, kind of already. So you would think that you can get, you know, the, the top students in their third year of law school, uh, you know, they're not yet decided about what they're going to do post law school, except uh, that happened to be this kind of race to the bottom of let's get the, you know, best from second year and let's maybe get the top person who finishes, you know, top of her class the first year. And so he noticed that and his clerks that year told him, yeah, you got to get in early. So he was actually the first justice that I interviewed with. I sent, I sent it also to chief justice, Barak Aron Barak, who's a, you know, very, was a very prominent um, president of the Israeli Supreme court uh, and also very well known around the world for his scholarship. Um, but he wasn't interviewing yet. And, and I came and I did just this, this One interview with Justice Amir, he offered me the clerkship and I ended up, you know, not interviewing with anybody else. And I can say that it was one of the best, you know, career experiences that I've ever had. I learned so much from him, not only from his wisdom and, you know, deep thinking about law, but also just from his style of, you know, uh, working as a team Uh, Not being very hierarchical and I'm the authority, but really letting me, um, unusually kind of giving me more uh, discretion, drafting uh, decision opinions challenging his you know his uh take on things
0: and that that sounds like great leadership to me allowing you to almost grow and, and have those opportunities um and again it's amazing what you've you've done because sticking with you know impressive things you also spent some time teaching at Yale Law School so can you tell us more about your time at Yale?
1: Yeah, it was. Uh, I didn't want just to have Harvard. So okay. <laughs> <laughs> and this has become also common in kind of the academic track. I had done my graduate doctoral studies at Harvard, and before going on the tenure track job market, what you call it, the meat market happened very soon now, again, kind of, it happens every year in October in DC. Um, I decided to do, um, like, a, we call it a BAP, a visiting assistant professorship, or kind of a lectureship for a couple of years. It's basically a postdoc for law, you know, academics, where you are teaching, and you're doing your research, but you're still deciding, you know, where to go um, for your permanent job. I actually have a lot of thoughts in comparison, unlike with like Philadelphia and uh, Harvard, where I said, oh, it both, you know, so comparable and amazing experiences. I have, if I knew you better, I would have <laughs> more stories for you about that move, Cambridge to New Haven and, um, you know, some things I saw. But every institution has very, very distinct cultures. Um, Yale you know, is a little bit more closed. Uh, And uh, a little bit more self referential. Yeah.
0: Well, it's, you know, it's great that, like you said, you got both, you got Yale, got Harvard, and you've had different experiences. And, you know, sticking with the sort of academic side of things, you're now the Warren Distinguished Professor of Law and Director of Center for Employment and Labor Policy at the University of San Diego. So, what do you most enjoy about the role there? Yeah.
1: Well, the truth is, it's almost embarrassing an embarrassment of riches. I love every aspect of my job. As a professor, I love, and we wear several hats for sure. So, you know, we we think about it always as a three-pronged hat, uh, but it's probably more um, where we have the the writing and research on the one hand, then we have teaching and mentoring students and sending them off to the world to become attorneys. Um, And then um, our service, uh, which the directorship of my center is is part of my institutional lead Leadership service. So, all of them have a lot of synergies with one another. So, you know, there's uh, um, so much that I learned from my students. This semester, I'm teaching a course that's called Corporate Innovation and Legal Policy, which is a seminar that very much changes every year. It uh, is about how we think about tech and innovation and how it fits with our social goals, our legal policies, our collective um, values. And because it's about innovation, (laughs) it's always new to teach this course, it always changes. And uh, my students in this smaller seminar, they all write pieces, of, they all write uh, research papers under my guidance. So I learned from them about, you know, what's the latest on uh content moderation and blockchain and uh nfts and um environmental pollution regulation and green tech and they're all really amazing so i love my students um and i absolutely love writing that's that's probably what how i think about myself Um, my first first passion is is as an author and my my third book is now coming out in october the equality machine so Really pouring so much of what I learn and, and research into um, the broader audience books. It's very much. Uh... Is at the frontier of my work right now.
0: Yeah, and it's 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 so much the amazing work you do because obviously you're a wonderful author and you know your new exciting book and you know you're talking my language also when you're talking about tech. I'm a Web three enthusiast. I love seeing how the Metaverse is basically you know going to be lots of opportunities, particularly for the legal industry and and all things Web three uh, technologies. And so talking around that, you consult government and the industry on law and technology. So tell us a bit more about sort of those companies, government departments you've collaborated with and, you know, share some of your experiences because I really love that sort of, you know, innovative sort of legal meets tech side of things.
1: Sure. Yeah. So uh, my first book was, uh, is called Talent Wants to be Free. And um I was really looking at how innovation happens in the tech industry here in Silicon Valley in California, here in Southern California in the biotech industry, um, and really around the world, um, also in Israel, by the way, uh, which is Innovation Nation and you know, number one per capita with startups and VC investment, um, you know, probably second only to Silicon Valley. Um, and you know, we can talk also about my military experience coming out of that. Um, you know, in, in a unit where a lot of the startup teams actually met uh, doing their military service and then um, going into industry. But um, I was seeing a lot of this impulse of tech companies and companies at large to control innovation and in, particularly, in particular uh to control human capital. So um, the potential for innovation, the talent um, that is really at the frontier of innovation, uh, the scientists and the programmers. And um, when I looked in California, and, and really it, it, this is there's also kind of this autobiographical piece in the research where I was looking at um, the legal regime in Massachusetts and Connecticut where I was teaching and then moving to California here in California. California, we have this very unique stance where we do not enforce non-competes. And it's been in, it, it has been the law in California since the inception of the state. So it's really. This unique stance of wanting talent to be free. So you know that's the title of my book. Talent wants to be free, but it's not only that. You know the, the people that um, move between jobs are better off because they can really be selective and you know where their um, experience and skills and passions. Uh, are the most, uh, you know, the best fit, the most valuable, the most valued, also in terms of salary. That that is part of the story, but also it's a, a win win for industry. It, it means that. You have much more um, of idea and knowledge flow in these competitive markets. Um, there is much more of an incentive to be the best employer, the you know the hottest employer in town. Um, you know, to be the next Google, to be the you know the next place that people want to work at, um, versus having this kind of incumbent. I'm just going to be controlling, and I'm going to just have that stick rather than the carrot of uh, you can't leave. And and so I started doing a lot of research. I collaborate with economists, with social psychologists. Uh, I, I have experimental research on this. and um, there's also a you know, a greater community of researchers that really kind of devoted now are devoting their attention to this question of competitive markets. And um, when I wrote Talent Wants to Be Free, it was it wasn't that long ago, but I felt like I was in this dearth that nobody was paying attention. People were tend to paying attention to intellectual property policy, but they weren't paying attention to human capital policy. And all of a sudden in 2016, just you know, a couple of years after I published Talent Wants to Be Free, I got a call from the White House, from the Obama administration saying, you know what, we really actually do want to care about these questions of um, labor market competition. And I was invited to the White House to present um, the ideas and talent wants to be free and subsequent research um, for to President Obama's policy team. And I became part of the White House working group on this issue, which resulted in a, an executive order um, in October 2016, which is uh, just before the administration. Um, it was a, a new administration. Um, and then um, actually, even during the Trump administration, I continued to talk to the Federal Trade Commission about um, competitive markets and focusing on tech and growth and innovation and consumer welfare. Um, and. And other parts of the, uh, the administration, definitely now with mm-hmm. the Biden administration, I've talked to, um, people at the uh, Biden's labor policy advisory and FEC and the Antifa division and, um, in the working group, there were um, members from the Treasury Department, so that's all been really fascinating and very gratifying to see these ideas from research and the evidence from empirical data really come to a um, meaningful, you know, practice and you know, policy implications. So, um, just one more thing that it, President Biden actually, so I wrote um, in 2021 a um, day one report. It's called it's. Kind of uh this uh report to the new administration calling it to act on uh an important issue and i co-authored this with uh my friend mark lemley who's a tech and intellectual property scholar at uh, Stanford Law School. And we again said, you know, we have to look at these competitive markets also from the human capital perspective and non-feeds and the flow of experience, not just ideas that are already reduced to practice or, you know, tangible and, in that way of like, you know, patented. And um, a few months after that, President Biden issued an executive order on competition policy. And the first thing that he says there is really, channeling of very much exactly what we say of uh, asking the FTC to look at non-competes and to curtail that spread of non-competes in the world. Um, so that's, you know, that's all been really exciting, really wonderful. I then co-authored a day one report on non-disclosure agreements, uh, which is equally a very significant issue about what we can say, what we can use, what is defined as trade secrets. So we can talk about that. And then now, you know, I have the new book and very much hoping to be in conversations with the Federal Trade Commission and many other um, government um, and governments really uh, you know entities where you know not just in the federal level but here in California and around the world also talked to some uh, Israeli agencies um, about other issues on tech policy which you can talk about and, you know I would love to, to hear what you're thinking about.
0: Well, it's, it's fascinating just, just listening to you there and 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 everything you've been involved with, and and such, you know, breadth. and, And let's stick with that. Time for a quick break from the show you wouldn't leave a potential client waiting in your office for three days. But what about when it comes to returning potential clients, phone calls, emails, or even web inquiries? If you're not responding rapidly to those who inquire about your firm's services, you could be losing money, losing clients, and affecting your law firm's reputation. Thankfully, there's a resource from our sponsor, Clio, that can help you, called How to Grow Your Firm with Legal Client Intake. It's a free guide that will show you exactly how why you should be automating your client intake process download your free copy at clio.com forward slash uk forward slash free intake guide that's clio forward slash uk forward slash three intake guide now back to the show Obviously, you are a renowned tech, you know, policy scholar. Let's maybe for people listening in, could you maybe outline three recent developments with regards to tech policies, also government regulations in America for us? Just give us a bit of an idea.
1: Sure. Yeah. So right now, I'm very much looking at questions of automation and AI, and there have been recent developments plus a lot of proposals to regulate AI, digital platforms, automation. And I actually, the my book, The Equality Machine, that's coming out in October is all about um, some what I see as um, blind spots and falsities and fallacies on how we're thinking about uh, a lot of our you know, tech policy. Uh, so I think that at the moment, what we see in terms of developments, and I don't know if I need to list like the top three, or you can kind of think about it as bundles of you know where are tunnel vision has been going, um, both in the EU, EU, the European Union and, uh, the U S. Um, so definitely not just, uh, American regulation. Uh, we look a lot at kind of these safeguards after there've been, uh, a lot of fear of uh, big tech and platforms and things going gone wrong. Um, and the equality machine is really starting from the point of yeah, okay, the, we've had some tech fails. Uh, never denying that there are risks. So there are risks of some algorithmic bias. There are risks of, um, some security, you know, uh, issues, uh, with cybersecurity, with hacking, with privacy, uh, intrusion. Uh, but overall, um, what we need to also acknowledge is that AI has so much potential for Good and for helping social policy. That uh, I think that it's very clear that we've been kind of overshadowing um, a lot of the potential and the constructive prescriptive uh, you know policies that we could be adopting because of these fears. Some of them are correct and some of them are exaggerated some of them are simply not true some of them are not comparing to the status quo so that's you know that's a big peeve of mine so um where i see people you know i think the most intuitive example is when we look at debates about um, self-driving cars or you know, autonomous vehicles. Uh, there's been a lot of these. Oh, there's you know a Wimo car got into an accident or an Uber car, a self-driving you know experiment uh, crashed, and immediately the conclusion is you know this is. And safe technology. And, uh, the, you know, the question is not whether there are some accidents with uh, autonomous vehicles. The question is comparatively, are they, and they aren't now, they absolutely are not yet. But the question will be quite soon, are they safer than human drivers? And a lot of times in tech policy and in public debates and all of the conversations, and I can give this example and so many other, you know, in in my book, uh, The Equality Machine, I go through so many different policy fields from medicine and health to um, safety and online harms. Um, and hate speech and content moderation and, and uh, job hiring and interview and pay and promotion. Um, we can, you know, we have to ask these questions about automation and platforms in comparative ways, and, and that's really what I'm pushing for. And that's why I think there's, you know, very vast implications to so much that's happening really as we speak. All these new proposals, uh, like the EU is trying to adopt the global, you know. Very comprehensive AI uh, regulation draft, uh, or the draft is already in existence. uh, But AI regulation uh, will be like the GDPR, uh, comprehensive and. that- In a while I think all of these efforts are really valuable, yeah, go ahead.
0: I was going to say, yeah, because it's, it's there's so many things here with, with with AI and you know how it potentially can assist with the American law enforcement. You make so many good points about the driver's cars, but I was going to talk a bit more about the data uh, privacy laws because you know explaining how you know, they work in the US, you know, particularly where you're based and, you know, getting a different perspective, because it's probably gonna be different to maybe the UK, or there'll be some similarities. So I'd love to, to hear a bit more on that, particularly around the data privacy laws.
1: Yeah, so data privacy, or privacy, as you say that, um, it is, of course, important. And um, it is an aspect of our daily lives. Uh, We, We are living in a datified era and we are uh, being surveyed, if you want to use the kind of more aggressive word, or we're being, you know, um, connected and um, collected uh, in terms of our personal information uh, all the time. And privacy again is important. I want don't want that to be lost in the conversation. But my argument, and in addition to the arguments that I have and and everything that I developed and kind of deep research and a lot of interviews that I do for the quality Machine, I actually have a new article that um, I just uh, finished a draft article that goes um, very deep into privacy policy. Um, what I've been arguing now is that it's Privacy is one, but one value that we care about in our society. And um, what I kind of alluded to before about, you know, some fears are rational and some fears are irrational. I think with privacy, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of, oh, no, you know, with government and private an industry is extracting all this data about me and that's you know there's kind of a doomsday fear that that will have negative implications and what we really should be regulating this is this is the core argument you know if you want to have that big takeaway right now from you know comparing the GDPR and what I think is more important what we really should be regulating is the use of data and information and channeling the knowledge that we have as a society for good rather than the extraction itself Um, and that's because in general I think we can all agree that knowing more is you know about about our um Biology, about our health, about our nature, about our ecology, about our planet, about our psyche, um, about our communities. All of that is actually wonderful. It's the dream of not only a researcher like me, but it's the dream of policymakers, about it's the dream of, uh, you know, rational, free, competitive, truly, you know, perfect markets. And right now we have the technology. And we have it more and more. We're going to have it more and more that will enable that, you know, that will really um, bring us to these levels of more accuracy, more efficiency. A more innovation that's really that works in terms of our, you know, not only mapping the human genome, you know, which everybody kind of understands significance, but really, you know, when you look at COVID vaccines and cures and, you know, new proteins and um, thinking about, you know, these tough, wicked questions of climate change and um, poverty alleviation and hunger, all of these, there is so much potential for. Um, Using AI paired with um, significant data collection to really tackle these problems. So um, the kind of default of let's not collect, and that's kind of the default with GDPR, um, where, you know, the default is that you don't consent to data collection unless you consent, which is in itself a real um, kind of fallacy of true consent, because these are all click wrap, you know, uh, default consumer boilerplate opt-in that is really not not a, a substantial and meaningful um, agreement so you know I have stuff to say about that too but but um you know looking more at the outputs of you know what we can do with information and then protecting of course sensitive information and there's technology can help in that too and um, really redacting and anonymizing and parental privacy that doesn't allow that Um, tracking back the end user, all of those should be our focus, um, at least equally to the collection process.
0: Yeah, and I love how you're just giving so many examples for good, you know, because I think it's really important that, you know, with the right people, with the right information, as you said, there's a lot that could be done from a very positive perspective with all of these, um, you know, things that are developing at a very fast rate. So moving away from tech a little bit, you're also a very frequent speaker. So you've spoken at top research institutions, government forums, you've traveled to Europe, Asia, Australia, North America, pretty much everywhere. So what's been your most memorable event, if I could pin you down to one or two that off the top of your head you've most enjoyed?
1: Oh, wow. Um, and the events are coming back, right? Cause we had some time now with uh, more Zoom. Like personally, I would love to come visit the UK right now, but yeah. Our, our doors are always another, open to uh, you. <laughs> quality, of, yeah. Another great thing uh, about technology, really connecting us in times where it's harder. But um, I, I have to say that one of my most memorable visits um, was to Korea, to Seoul, Korea, um, where I was invited. It was kind of a threesome uh, invitation where um, that same week that I was invited, um, my book Talent Wants to be Free was uh, translated into Korean. So I had a Korean publisher host and then Seoul National University hosted me for talks. And then Samsung invited me to give a talk to their executives, and that was amazing. It was an amazing and intense week where I got to talk and learn from industry and academia, and um, you know all the tastes and uh, you know, beauty of Korea was just. Uh, South Korea was, was amazing um, and memorable. It was such nice uh, hosting, so gracious. Um, and, you know, that's really also um, very rewarding to see these um, translations and and to learn like from samsung that they were thinking yeah. about very similar things that we were thinking about here in california about you know how to incentivize innovation how to have a startup culture and not just you know a concentrated market um and they gave me i remember with uh with samsung i was i was holding my iphone to um, <laughs> Keep track of the time, and then in the end, they gave me a gift of uh you know, a Samsung notebook. <laughs> I was like, okay, switch, but then I. I <laughs> uh, yeah, so, but I just love this. Um, I, you know, my, my second book, You Don't Own Me, which is a full story about the toy industry, really took me to, in the research, to a lot of places around the world. It's a global story about how Barbie was invented. And there's a European history there, there's a German and Swiss history. And then there you go you to California and then you um, see production in first in Japan and in China. And, uh, you see competition coming from various places around the world. And so, yeah, I just love, um, how there is, um, you know, cultural impact in our innovation regimes and then, uh, a lot of both differences and similarities. So those very specific stories, like I think about "You Don't Own Me," uh, the Barbie Mattel innovation battles story that I wrote, as uh, very specific to hear like the entertainment industry in Southern California, but also a very universal story that has implications world. Well.
0: You're fascinating stuff. I'm just loving learning, you know, more and more about your journey and the things that you've done, and you know, your, your books. and Let's let's talk a little bit more about that then. Because Because in 2016, you were invited to Washington, D.C. to present your book, uh, Talent Wants to Be Free, which we've obviously mentioned, um, at the White House. So tell us more about that special occasion.
1: (laughs) Well, there's a funny backstory there, because I was in Tel Aviv for the summer, like I And I had plans to go with one of my closest childhood friends, Mo, uh, who's a psychologist, um, to Berlin to see uh, Sting at a concert. And (laughs) I love Sting. Um, So this is a little bit of a, you know, sidetrack of like, what is the White House really like? But I I just think it's funny to... um, to remember how I got this email from the White House and I thought it was spam, so I deleted it. So then I got like more emails and calls of like, no, you, you know, we really want to have this meeting in August um, in DC and um, can you come? And um, it meant that I had to not go back from Berlin to Tel Aviv and I had left all my stuff and my summer uh, stuff. And well, not just stuff, but also my husband and kids. <laughs> (laughs) there um and instead uh i i um flew to D.C. Um, I was not yet an American citizen. So there was even like a, this experience of they didn't realize that. And so you need special clearances to get into the White House when you don't have an American passport. And I did not have those. They just assumed, um, you know, a Californian uh, professor that will go in smoothly with the name in the you know security. So there were more wrinkles there. But eventually I got in and it was on President Obama's birthday. that day Um, so i saw like a a cake leap being wheeled into a different room and i kind of tried to follow that but um i was stopped (laughs) by some security like no that's not your party (laughs) um so but but this meeting was wonderful it was um really members um from uh congress and um people from uh, the president's policy team and um, somebody from the labor department um treasury department and, and uh, i think from the antitrust division i can't remember exactly the uh the players in that um conference room but it was a broad umbrella because i think that innovation policy and this has been a, a lot of point of my research is a really broad umbrella of you know you have to think about effects throughout like the you know, labor market and the uh, financial industry and the environment and um, the kind of creatives and it's just kind of thinking more across policy fields to see implications is. In general, it's very important
0: to, to smart policy. Yeah, and I just can't believe that you had a your your book the same day as the birthday of Barack. Obama. I mean, that's that's a cool, interesting fact and uh, <laughs> experience. And and let's stick them with with books because we've touched on it throughout the conversation. Obviously, your forthcoming you know the Equality Machine, which discusses harnessing digital technology for a brighter, more inclusive future. So, would you mind telling us more just about your motivations and and more about the book? Yeah.
1: So the book is contrary. <laughs> the book is bold and um, a little bit of sneaky, I would say, in the sense of like it sounds very feel good, you know, we like brighter future, but it's really a critique uh, to begin with, with uh, where we are in our polarized debates of like um, there's all these bestsellers that have shaped our minds about algorithmic bias and automating inequality and surveillance capitalism, and uh, there's the movie the social dilemma and you know there's a lot of fear out there from kind of the outside about um, exclusions and harms and then there are a lot of these bestsellers uh about like it's all going to be this utopian wonderful uh you know uh, machine human synergies that will make us all like amazing and uh, bionic (laughs) and immortal um and i come from a kind of cautiously optimistic critically constructive tradition uh both in my training and you know my temper um and i wanted to write something that really was about all of us and how we can have skin in the game and be um asking the right questions, finding the best case examples and really carving a path forward um, with a blueprint of what we want our future to look like.
0: I I love that. And we're big fans of Contrarian over here on the Legally Speaking podcast. I think it's important. (laughs) And yeah, you're a wonderful author, wonderful writer. And I would strongly encourage people to make sure they check that out in due course. And before we look to, to sort of conclude our discussion, we've just been fascinating learning all about your journey and all these experience globally experiences. What advice would you give to the next generation students, legal professionals that are interested in technology, data, or or even privacy law? What would be your sort of words, final words of wisdom to those individuals?
1: Final words of wisdom. <laughs> I think that everybody should uh, be in the conversation. I think that uh, really talking across fields and across ideologies is the way to go, not thinking about something as a tech company or thinking, oh, you know, Silicon Valley is all, it's a rigged game or it's non-inclusive. Um, I think, you know, we're, things are changing as we speak. And one of the things that is uh, very important in um uh, the quality machine principles that I show and I interview amazing people for it like from computer scientists at MIT who are changing medical health uh, medical devices and health um, diagnostics through AI and technology and um, other scientists who are changing our education system through robots in the classroom um, what I think is uh, really important is to find mentors, find the things that you love and you think really can make a difference and an impact and make the world brighter as the subtitle of the equality machine um and and just do it really um with you know all all your passion and experience and and smarts and and it will happen
0: I love that you banged on about two things that everyone over the last hundred and however many episodes we've done on this show about the importance of having mentors and also don't overcomplicate, it, just do it and so I think that's really sage advice and uh, I thoroughly as I mentioned before enjoyed this conversation if our listeners want to know more about your new book what's the best way for them to to find out more to contact yourself feel free to shout out any of your social media or website links we'll also share all of those details of this episode for you too
1: perfect the quality machine is coming out in October, but it's already on Amazon and everywhere you uh, buy your books uh, for pre-order on uh, you know hardcover, Kindle, Audible. And I have a burgeoning book tour already in place where I'm going to be uh, in Philadelphia and in Boston and uh, Los Angeles and Seattle and uh, San Diego for bookstore events and some online events so you can find a lot of information on my social media so just follow me connect with me orly Lobel, um on you know twitter and linkedin i love connecting with readers and um people who are in the field everybody it's really for a broad audience um from you know tech to policy to equality to um you know just uh anybody who has creative and innovative um passions. So I connect with uh my readers and learn from them. So I hope you know everybody will enjoy it and read it and share it. Yeah, I look forward to all of that.
0: Well I'm sure people are gonna absolutely love it. As much as I've loved having you on the show all it's been an absolute pleasure hosting you today. So we would like to wish you lots of continued success with your pursuits, no doubt future books as well in the future. But for now, from all of us on the Legally Speaking podcast over and out. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you like the content here, why not check out our world-leading content and collaboration hub, The Legally Speaking Club, over on Discord. Go to our website, www.legallyspeakingpodcast.com, for the link to join our community there. Over and out.